Don't let diaper rash come between you and your baby. Diaper rash can be one of the worst experiences your little one has to go through, and keeping their delicate skin happy and healthy shouldn't require a spatula to apply thick, goopy treatments that can be just as irritating and uncomfortable as the diaper rash. Instead, try Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant, free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide. It was developed by a mom who is also a doctor when she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash. Use just a small amount of Dr. Mom Butt Balm to help soothe your baby's skin and feel good about making the right choice. Nothing comes between you and your baby, not even diaper rash. Check out Dr. Mom Butt Balm, available on Amazon or walmart.com. Back in the day when my girls were born, it was not easy to share photos and videos with loved ones, but you have a fantastic option available, the Family Album app. The Family Album app was created in 2015 and has operated in the long term to give parents a secure and easy way to share photos and videos with loved ones. It's a totally secure personal haven for your family's memories. I love that there's no third-party ads, no unwanted eyes. Now, let me share some of the great features that make the Family Album app a go-to app. First off, the app automatically sorts photos and videos by month, allowing you to swipe back in time and see how your child has grown. No more scrolling through endless feeds or searching through folders. Another cool feature about the Family Album app is you can order eight free photo prints every month to be delivered to your home. It's really nice to have some tangible pictures to hold onto or share to document each month of your baby's life. Plus, the Family Album app has unlimited storage and it is totally free. Yes, you heard that right. No more worrying about running out of space or being bombarded by ads when you're just trying to relive those heartwarming moments. So if you are still trying to use other messaging apps for your kids' photos, it is time to level up your family photo game with a free photo sharing app. Head over to the App Store today, search Family Album, it's all one word, download the app and start creating a legacy of love one photo at a time. In this episode, you are going to learn about preterm labor. Welcome to the All About Pregnancy and Birth podcast. I'm Dr. Nicole Calloway-Rankins, a board-certified OBGYN who's been in practice for nearly 15 years. I've had the privilege of helping over 1,000 babies into this world, and I'm here to help you be calm, confident, and empowered to have a beautiful pregnancy and birth. Quick note, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Check out the full disclaimer at drnicolerankins.com forward slash disclaimer. Now let's get to it. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is episode number 164. As always, I'm so glad that you're spending some of your time with me today. So in this episode, you're going to learn about preterm labor, which is one of the leading causes of preterm birth. In last week's episode, episode 163, I went through risk factors for preterm birth. So you can go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. 
Now, in this episode, we're going to talk about preterm labor. You're going to learn about the signs and symptoms of preterm labor, how we evaluate and diagnose preterm labor, the management for preterm labor, and then what to do after preterm labor stops. Now, one thing I am not going to talk about is what happens with your baby if you have a preterm birth, specifically like the outcomes for your baby if you have a preterm birth, because that's pretty complicated. In general, the earlier that your baby is born, the higher the chances of your baby having problems or being at risk for death. If your baby is preterm, I do have a great episode about things you want to know if your baby's in the NICU. That is episode 76 of the podcast with Dr. Terry Major Kincaid. So do check that out if you have a preterm birth. But again, in this episode, I'm not going to go through all of the outcomes for babies who may be born early. Now, before we get into the episode, a quick listener shout out. This is to NOLA Movement. I love that, NOLA Movement. And the title of the review says, I'm ready. The review says, so grateful for this podcast. As I look forward to pregnancy, I feel empowered and exploring what all of my options are. Thank you, Dr. Nicole. Well, you are so welcome, NOLA Movement. I am so glad that you feel empowered when you think about pregnancy. Another thing that can make folks feel empowered, make you feel empowered beyond this podcast is my class on making a birth plan. Making a birth plan. It's called Make a Birth Plan the Right Way. Those templates, forms, and checklists that you find online, those are not enough to make a birth plan that actually works. In this one hour class, you will learn everything you need to know about making a birth plan, questions to ask, things to include, how to get folks to pay attention, because really a birth plan is so much more than that piece of paper. Really making a birth plan is a process where you understand that your doctor and your hospital are on your side for the things that you want for your birth. And a piece of paper that you show up with when you're in labor, that's not going to cut it. So check out the class. It's drnicolerankins.com forward slash register. It's on demand so you can take it when it's convenient for you. I will see you in the class. All right, let's talk about preterm labor. So the first thing that I want to say is that preterm labor does not automatically mean you are going to have a preterm birth. We have medicines that are fairly effective, and I'll go through the treatments later, in at least delaying birth for 48 hours, even up to a week or so. But even if we don't give those medicines, those are called tocolytics to stop labor, approximately 50% of women who are diagnosed with preterm labor will go on to give birth at term. So preterm labor does not always mean you will have a preterm birth. Now, with that being said, let's go ahead and talk about some of the symptoms of preterm labor. So it can be a little bit difficult to determine preterm labor. There are some signs and symptoms that may be present for several hours or days before preterm labor happens. Some of those things are menstrual-like cramping, mild, irregular contractions, a increase in pressure sensation in the vagina or in the pelvis, a low backache can be present, some spotting or very light bleeding, also vaginal discharge, like a mucousy discharge that can be clear, 
It can be slightly blood tinge. It can look like the mucus plug. Now, the thing about all of these things is that, is that they are pretty common symptoms, like cramps can be pretty common, low back pain can be pretty common. So it's difficult to tell whether or not those symptoms are actually a sign of preterm labor. Diagnosing preterm labor is pretty imprecise. But when you have those symptoms, when you have those signs, you do want to bring it up to your provider, especially if those things are persistent so that we can evaluate and check it out and make sure everything is okay. Now, if you have just sort of like mild symptoms, oh, I have a little bit of increased backache, oh, I have a little bit of new discharge, then you can typically be evaluated in the office. But if things are really intense and you're feeling like you're having contractions, then you're going to want to go to labor and delivery in order to be evaluated so we can do a good, thorough, comprehensive evaluation there. And the first thing that we're going to start with when we're trying to decide if someone has preterm labor is really just talking to you, talking to you about what you're feeling, how often you've been feeling things. We're going to going to want to know about your history during your pregnancy, your medical history, whether or not you have any risk factors for preterm birth, especially if you had a prior preterm birth, that is one of the strongest risk factors for having a preterm birth. We also want to look at things that can cause contractions, but may not actually be reflective of labor. For example, a placenta abruption can cause contractions. Appendicitis can cause contractions because it's like irritating to the uterus. Um, a kidney infection can sometimes cause contractions. Gallbladder infection can cause contractions. So we need to make sure that there are other things that aren't causing those contractions beside preterm labor. We also need to make sure we know exactly how far along you are during your pregnancy because that's going to influence what we do in terms of the evaluation and treatment. And then, of course, we put you on the monitor, see if you're having contractions, how frequently they are lasting, how long they are lasting, how intense they are. I always personally like to put my hands on someone's belly and feel the contractions. That gives me an idea of how strong or how not strong they are. I always find that helpful and I feel reassured when the contractions are not palpating as strong. We may do a speculum exam to look inside and see if we see any bleeding. Um, If you're complaining of a discharge, we may make sure that it's not your water that's broken. In some cases, we may do a wet prep examination to look for bacterial vaginosis. And then, of course, we're going to check your cervix digitally, digitally, that means with our fingers, and check and see if your cervix is dilated and that's opened or if it's effaced and thin. So if you are having regular contractions and your cervix is open when we check, then that is preterm labor. Now, a lot of times people also ask about ultrasound and something that may help us is doing a transvaginal ultrasound to determine the length of your cervix, a cervix that is less than 30 millimeters, and that's three centimeters before 34 weeks is predictive of an increased risk of preterm birth whereas a longer cervix that's greater or equal to 30 millimeters, three centimeters, you are not at an increased risk for preterm birth. Now, the thing about transvaginal ultrasound is that it is not always available. 
You also have to be trained in order to do it the right way. So that is not something that I would say is necessarily commonly available, but in some places you will get a transvaginal ultrasound fairly quickly to try to determine if you are at risk for preterm labor based on the length of your cervix. And then once we've established that you are in preterm labor, then typically we're going to get an ultrasound to look for other things like where's the placenta? Are there any issues with the baby's growth? Is the fluid around the baby okay? What is the estimated baby's weight? Because that gives some good information for the NICU doctors and how they counsel you on what can happen with your preterm birth. So ultrasound isn't a huge part of that initial evaluation for preterm labor, but eventually it's going to come into play within the first, I would say 24 hours or so. After we suspect that you have preterm labor, you will get an ultrasound. Expecting parents who are looking for great nursery decor, this message is for you. As you prepare for the beautiful journey ahead, let Home Threads be your partner in creating a serene nest for your growing family. At HomeThreads.com, explore a collection designed for comfort and style during this special time. From cozy nursery essentials to soothing rocking chairs, Home Threads has everything to create the perfect home for your little one and always at the best value. If you like unique items, then you definitely need to check out Home Threads. We got a silver picture frame from Home Threads that is absolutely beautiful. It's one of those timeless classic items that will last for years to come and it fits in any space in your home. Be sure to visit homethreads.com forward slash Dr. Nicole today and receive a code for 15% off your first order. Home Threads, love where you live. Now, as far as laboratory tests go, there is no great like laboratory test that's going to say, hey, we do this test. Yes, you're in preterm labor. No, you're not in preterm labor. Yes, you're at risk. No, you're not at risk. Something called a fetal fibronectin, which is a uh, protein that is found in the uh, vagina. It's a protein that's thought to be part of the glue that holds the amniotic fluid or the amniotic sac rather um, next to the wall of the uterus. If we detect fetal fibronectin and it's detected by a little swab that's placed in your vagina, if we detect fetal fibronectin, that does indicate an increased risk of preterm birth within seven days. Um, but it's not certain that you're going to have a preterm birth, just increases the risk. It is a good test. If it's negative, it's not likely that you're going to have a preterm birth, but positive doesn't necessarily help predict it one way or another. So that is one laboratory test that we may do. Other laboratory tests that we'll do, we'll typically check a urine culture because pregnant folks can have asymptomatic bacteria, meaning bacteria in the urine that is asymptomatic. That does increase your risk of preterm birth. So we will check for that. And depending on your history, we may also check for sexually transmitted infections, okay? So you come in, we put you on the monitor, we check your cervix, we check those tests, and then if it looks like you are having regular painful contractions and your cervix is opening, then that is preterm labor. 
If your cervix is not opening, then that is considered preterm contractions, not preterm labor. They're kind of sort of treated similarly, depending on how far along you are. But in general, preterm contractions are not as much of a concern. It's really preterm labor where your cervix is opening that we get concerned. Now, sometimes it may be the case that you come in, you're having contractions, we check and right away we're like, oh, you're two centimeters or you're three centimeters. So then we know right away, yes, you are in preterm labor. But sometimes this is something that is decided over time. Like you may come in, you're having contractions and your cervix may be closed. We may have to say, hey, we just have to watch you for a couple hours and see what things look like over time. So it's not necessarily a straightforward, easy, right away diagnosis that we can say, hey, you are in preterm labor. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time to make that decision for sure. All right, now once we have decided, okay, yes, you are having contractions, your cervix is opening, you are in preterm labor, then we need to talk about treatment. And treatment can be a little bit tricky because it's really hard to identify who will actually go on to give birth preterm. Remember I said, even if we don't do anything, about 50% of people will go on and still have a term birth. So it's kind of hard to identify who is actually going to go on and deliver. You are more likely to be in true labor if the intensity of your contractions increases. So if the contractions start at a lower level and they get to be more painful, more painful, more painful, then that is more likely to be true labor. Uh, instead of, you know, um, just preterm contractions. So those are things that we look at. But again, it's not always easy to tell. So because of that, we generally, I don't want to say like throw everything at it, but we treat everybody who has suspected preterm labor with all of the options and things that we have available because we want to do the best outcomes. So we're probably going to do all of the things. And then if things settle down, then great, things settle down. Just because, and I'm saying this to say that just because if you go in with contractions, especially if you're early, you know, before 32 weeks, if you're early and we're like, hey, we're going to give you the steroids, hey, we're going to give you these medicines for the baby's brain. If we give you all of these things, it's not necessarily because we know or believe that you're certainly going to have your baby early. It's just that we don't know how to tell for sure. And we want to be sure that we give you all of the things just in case, because you can't go back and do the things. You want to provide all of the options that are available so that the baby can has the, has the best chance of having a good outcome if it's born early. So I hope that makes sense. Okay. So with that being said, let's talk about treatment. I'm going to break it down to greater than 34 weeks and before 34 weeks. So if you're greater than 34 weeks, then honestly, we don't do a whole lot to tip the scales either way. Like we don't do anything to push you into labor because that's still early, but we also don't do a whole lot to stop labor. Um, outcomes at 34 weeks for babies who are born at 34 weeks are very good. And especially if it's labor that happens naturally, like it's different than if it's labor that's induced because of say like preeclampsia or for something at 34 weeks, natural labor that happens at 34 weeks, babies tend to do well. Often the only thing we do is give steroids, steroids, and those are, um, 
specific steroids, they're betamethasone and dexamethasone. We only use those two types of steroids because those are the only ones that cross the placenta and give benefit to the baby. So we may give steroids. They help mature the baby's lungs and prevent poor outcomes for babies that are born. Actually, we give steroids before, anytime before 37 weeks these days. But after 34 weeks, we give steroids and we may not do a whole lot more than that. If contractions settle down after a few hours and you're likely going to be able to go home. Okay. Now, if you're greater than, I'm sorry, if you're less than 34 weeks, then we're more likely to do all of the things. And let me tell you what all of the things are. Okay, so as I just mentioned, we're going to give you what's called antenatal corticosteroids, and that's beta-methasone or dexamethasone, and we know that they help reduce neonatal morbidity and mortality that's associated with preterm birth. This is one of the most important advances in preterm birth is steroids. They have made a huge, huge difference in order... um, They have made a huge, huge difference in improving outcomes. For instance, back in the 60s, like a good example of this is um, President Kennedy, they uh, they had a baby that died who was around 33, 34 weeks uh, and was, was preterm. They just didn't have all of the things in NICU that they have now to support babies. Like it would be unheard of for a baby at 34 weeks to die today. And a lot of that is related to uh, antenatal steroids. So you're definitely going to get steroids if you're less than 34 weeks in a preterm labor. You'll get antibiotics for GBS antibiotic prophylaxis. GBS or group beta strep is a bacteria that about 40% of pregnant folks carry, and it can cause babies to get pretty sick in rare circumstances. I talk about GBS in episode 31 of the podcast, but we want to be sure that we prevent GBS from happening. So you're going to get antibiotics for GBS. You will get magnesium sulfate through your IV if you are less than 32 weeks. Magnesium helps to provide what we call neuroprotection, meaning it protects the baby's brain and it reduces the risk of cerebral palsy and other types of motor dysfunction in babies that are born preterm. We give that magnesium through your IV anywhere from six to 12 hours. Protocols are different at different hospitals. And then of course, the final thing that we do is something called tocolytics. Tocolytics are medications that stop labor. So toco is contractions, lytic is like stop, so stop labor. And we do tocolytic drugs typically for 48 hours. And we do it for 48 hours because that is how long, or that is the the time that we know that the steroids have taken their maximum effect. So steroids have the most effect when mom has gotten them for 48 hours before birth. So we want to give those tocolytic drugs to stop contractions for at least 48 hours, typically after the second dose of the steroid medication is done, um, or I should say 24 hours after the second dose of the steroid medication is done. Then we stop the tocolytics. And I guess I should back up and say the steroids are given as a shot of medicine. Forgive me. This is one of those things where I know in my head what happens with beta-methasone and dexamethasone, but you all don't. So let me explain it to you. So beta-methasone 
is an injection. It's given in your arm and then you give the second one 24 hours after the first one. And then 24 hours after that, the second one is when we would stop the tocolytic drugs. Dexamethasone is given slightly different. It's given every 12 hours for a total of four doses. And then we stop it um, 24 hours after the, the last dose. So that is how we give tocolytics. And tocolytics are great for delaying birth for 48 hours, even decent for delaying birth for seven days, but they're not that great for delaying birth to um, 37 weeks, so to full term. So they help really in the short term for getting the steroid medications on board. They also help in the short term for being able to transfer someone to a higher level of facility of care if the baby is really, really preterm. So generally we do those tocolytic medications for 48 hours and then we stop them. There's one instance where sometimes people continue them and I'll talk about that. It's not evidence-based, but I'll talk about that in a second. Now, I said that less than 34 weeks, we go kind of full court press in terms of everything that we do in order to prevent preterm birth when someone has preterm labor. But there is a lower limit where before that we don't do anything to stop labor because we don't have any um, interventions that can help. Okay, so the lowest that we can go is 22 weeks. And at 22 weeks, we have equipment where a small baby can be intubated. And even that is not 100%, but we can at least try. And when I say we, I mean the NICU doctors can try at 22 weeks, but that is not typical that babies are going to survive and do well at 22 weeks, but 22 weeks has kind of... um been the new standard or um, gestational age where we can consider resuscitating babies. And I'm hesitating because it really is hospital dependent. Um, some hospitals don't do interventions that early. Some hospitals are at 23 weeks, but in general, 22 to 23 weeks is where we have things that we can intervene in order to support a baby that's born early. Now there's some instances where we should not give tocolytics, where we should not try and stop labor. It's actually contraindicated. If there is a intrauterine fetal death, then we should not stop labor. If the baby has a lethal anomaly, then we should not stop labor. If the heart rate tracing is not reassuring and we're worried that the baby is in distress, then we should not stop labor. Uh, preeclampsia with severe features or eclampsia, which is seizures on top of preeclampsia, we should not stop labor. If mom is bleeding and is not stable, we should not stop labor. If there is an intraamniotic infection, also called chorioamnionitis, that's an infection of the membranes in the placenta, then we should not stop labor because the cure for that is to deliver the baby. Okay, so what are the medications that we use in order to stop labor? These are called tocolytics. And the most effective ones are endomethacin, that is a cyclooxygenase inhibitor. And that works really well, actually. It's one of the first line treatments for stopping labor, but there are some side effects, maternal side effects. It can cause nausea. It can cause reflux. It can cause gastritis. It can cause vomiting. Uh, those side effects aren't common, but they can happen. 
there are more severe potential baby side effects or fetal side effects. So there are two big concerns. One is something called constriction of the ductus arteriosus. The ductus arteriosus is a vascular structure in the heart. And if it's closed too early, it can lead to something called pulmonary hypertension or also tricuspid regurgitation. Those are both heart issues. So you have to be careful with how long you do the endomethacin exposure. You also have to be mindful of the gestational age if you're going to give endomethacin. It is not recommended after 32 weeks because the increased risk of premature closure of the ductus arteriosus is after 32 weeks in particular. The other issue that can be caused with endomethacin is it can cause the fluid, oligohydramnios, the fluid around the baby to be low. And that is thought to be because of the effect on the kidneys. It reduces the baby's urine output and then will in turn decrease the amniotic fluid volume. This is seen most often if you take it for greater than 72 hours. So we typically really only do it for 48 hours at the most 72 hours for endomethacin, but it does work well to stop contractions. Another medicine that is commonly used is something called nifedipine. Nifedipine is a calcium channel blocker. It is also a blood pressure medicine. The way that it works is it's what's called a peripheral vasodilator. And because of that, and vasodilator means it just opens blood vessels. And because of that, it may cause symptoms in mom like nausea, flushing, headaches, dizziness, even palpitations. Some of that may be related to reducing your blood pressure, but fortunately has very few side effects on baby. So not many side effects um, from the baby on nifedipine. There are very few contraindications to calcium channel blockers or Nafetapine, really the biggest one is that if you already have low blood pressure, because this is a blood pressure medicine, then sometimes we can't use it if you already have blood pressure that's pretty low. Also, you have to be careful with using nifedipine, a calcium channel blocker, and magnesium because it's sort of a complicated theoretical risk that if you get too much magnesium in your system, the way to fix too much too much magnesium in your system is to give calcium. I'm not going to explain like the physics or physiology of how that works rather, but if you have too much magnesium, you give calcium. But if you're giving what's called a calcium channel blocker, then that's not going to work if you give the calcium, if you have too much magnesium. So that risk is theoretical that that interaction can occur, but that medicine also works pretty well for stopping contractions too. Another one that is used more so for kind of short-term relief of contractions is terbutaline. It comes in oral forms. It also comes in injectable forms. We typically only use terbutaline to short-term start contractions. It used to be used on a more um, long-term basis. However, the FDA warned that it really shouldn't be used for more than 48 to 72 hours because there's an increased risk of heart problems and death. So terbutaline is rarely used for more than just a short-term course of stopping contractions, but it is fairly effective. Now, what is less effective is magnesium sulfate. Magnesium sulfate, 
I mentioned earlier can be used to, or should be used to help prevent um, or help protect the brain. It's a neuroprotective agent, but it's also an agent that can stop contractions. It's been studied for a long time, for over 40 years. However, it's just not that great at stopping contractions. It's it's not as effective as the nifedipine or the endomethacin. So this is really more of a second line agent. It also kind of makes you feel just, eh, when you're on magnesium, it doesn't have to, but for most people it does. It can cause sweating. It can cause flushing uh, and just make makes you just not necessarily feel great. Fortunately, there are very few side effects to baby. It may cause the fetal heart rate tracing to look a little bit flatter than it otherwise would, but it doesn't have any long-term effects on baby. It is contraindicated in patients who have myasthenia gravis. And if you have myasthenia gravis, it's a muscular disorder. And you have to be careful because magnesium is eliminated by the kidneys. So if you have issues with your kidney function, then we have to be careful about how we administer the magnesium so that we don't give you too much. Hey, so you made it this far in the episode, and I'm thinking it's because you enjoyed this podcast. Well, if that's the case, then I have a favor to ask. Creating and producing the All About Pregnancy into Birth podcast has been one of the greatest joys of my life. I'm so grateful to have each and every one of you on this journey with me. Your support and engagement means the world to me, and it's what helps keep this podcast going. But here's the thing. Producing a podcast involves time, effort, and resources from recording equipment to an editor, hosting fees, coordinating guests, countless hours spent researching and crafting content. It all adds up. And that's where I could use your support. I've never wanted to turn all about pregnancy and birth into a paywall. I want it to remain accessible to everyone. That's why I've set up a way for you to support the show financially if you're able and willing. If this podcast has helped you during your pregnancy, your birth, or your life, I'm asking you to consider contributing to the show. Your support will help cover production and team costs and ensure that I can continue delivering the episodes you love. So in the month of March, head to drnicolerankins.com forward slash support and contribute whatever you can. Your support, no matter how big or small, makes a significant impact. It helps us continue delivering high quality content and ensures the future of all about pregnancy and birth. Again, that's drnicolerankins.com forward slash support. Thank you so much for being part of the All About Pregnancy and Birth community. Now back to the show. So that's really it for the medicines that we know that can stop labor. Endomethazine, nifedipine, magnesium, and then terbutaline for short term. What is not effective is bed rest. Bed rest doesn't help. Hydration doesn't help. Hydration is good for stopping contractions if they're caused by dehydration. If you get dehydrated, there's a chemical get, that gets released that can cause you to have contractions, but they're not labor contractions. So we hydrate, not because it stops labor, but because it stops dehydration contractions. And again, bed rest is not effective, can also be harmful. It increases the risk of blood clots, deconditioning, osteoporosis. So we do not recommend strict bed rest as a method of reducing or stopping preterm labor. 
Okay, so what happens we if we give you the 48 hours of the tocolytic medicine, the contraction stops, so then what happens going forward? Well, if you are greater than 34 weeks and contractions stop, then typically you're going to be able to go home fairly quickly. You don't have to stay in the hospital for prolonged periods of time. That may be adjusted depending on how far away you live from the hospital and those kinds of things. But typically, if you're greater than 34 weeks, you don't have a lot of restrictions or things you can, can't do, and you're able to go home fairly quickly if you have threatened preterm labor. If you're less than 34 weeks, then how long you stay in the hospital is really on a case-by-case basis. It depends on how far along you are. If you have threatened preterm labor at 24 weeks, then we're definitely going to keep you in the hospital for a bit longer but to make sure things are okay before you go home. It also depends on how dilated your cervix is your past obstetric history. So if you had a prior preterm birth, then we probably are going to keep you in the hospital longer. Another important factor is how far away you live from the hospital. So if you live a long distance away, then we may recommend that you stay in the hospital. At minimum, you are going to be in the hospital until you complete the steroids until you're off of the tocolytic medication. So you can expect that if you have threatened preterm labor and we do all the things, you're going to be in the hospital at minimum two days. That is like the bare, bare minimum. And typically it, it, it's going to be longer. Um, I would say three to five days, even, even longer if you're, if you're earlier or if you're uh, pretty dilated. As far as resuming your activities after an episode of threatened preterm labor, most people can resume their activities of daily living. You definitely don't have to be on bed rest. We do suggest that you don't lift anything greater than 20 pounds. We also don't want you doing like strenuous exercises. And that's not because there's strong evidence that exercise or lifting causes problems. It's really just that any of the studies that look at preterm labor always exclude or don't have people do exercise. It's a hard thing to study to say, hey, your cervix is three centimeters dilated. Let's have you run around a lot and do exercise and see what happens. You know, nobody's going to do that. So in general, we say limit strenuous activity. Our Gentle walks going to be okay? Yes. Gentle yoga? Yes. It's really that strenuous exercise that we worry about. Work is always something that is evaluated on a case-by-case basis. Um, Typically, you can return to work, and it's going to depend. If you're super dilated, then probably not. But if you're just mildly dilated, one or two centimeters, three centimeters, then If you are not working more than 40 hours a week, if you're not standing a lot, and by standing that's more than eight hours in a day or more than four consecutive hours at a time, if you're not doing heavy physical work, then you can probably go back to work if you're just sitting at a desk, um, or you can go back to work and have reduced activity. Again, this is another thing that is very difficult to assess, um, and study, but, and it's also difficult because when people are out of work and they don't have income, that can be a real challenge. So it's a case by case basis. There's no strong evidence that you have to be out of work, but you're probably going to have to limit your activity to some degree. 
And then a final couple other things, um, travel, it's unlikely that travel increases the risk of preterm labor or preterm birth. But in general, we tell folks, you know, don't travel too far. You don't want to be too far from your usual doctor and hospital. Um, you don't want to be far away from a hospital. So just really talk to your doctor if you're planning some sort of travel. And then the final thing is sexual intercourse. We typically say, you know, avoid sexual intercourse if you know that afterwards it can cause you to have contractions, which some people do. There isn't strong evidence that it affects your risk of preterm birth. Um, it is theoretically possible that it can. I would think especially if you are more dilated and just having the membranes exposed and things like that. So you can play it on a case-by-case basis. And by sexual intercourse, let me say, I specifically mean penile to vaginal intercourse as a, a thing that can cause um, issues. There are other forms of intimacy that are that are just fine. Now, some things that are not effective after we have stopped preterm labor or or after preterm labor has stopped is maintenance tocolysis, meaning staying on a medication that stops contractions. There's no evidence that this works, but some people do use nifedipine or prescribe folks nifedipine to take at home as a maintenance tocolysis. There's no evidence that it works, um, but some people do do it. It really depends on your physician. It can be effective if you're having annoying preterm contractions that aren't really causing your cervix to dilate. Nifedipine at home three times a day can be helpful, but again, it's not really evidence-based. Um, back in the day, people used to be on magnesium for weeks. People used to be on terbutaline for weeks. We don't do those things anymore. Now, fetipine is the only one that may be prescribed in terms of trying to keep contractions um, away after that first 48 hours, but it's not based on much evidence. We also don't do repeated fetal fibronectin testing. Remember, fetal fibronectin is that vaginal swab that I said can predict preterm birth within the first seven days or so or indicate an increased risk. We don't repeat that again. Also, home uterine activity monitoring doesn't help. And by that, I mean like having a monitor at home that can see your contractions. That doesn't help um, either in terms of reducing the risk of preterm labor going on to be preterm birth. All right. So that is it. Just to recap, preterm labor does not equal preterm birth. 50% of folks who have preterm labor go on to deliver full term. The definition of preterm labor is regular contractions and cervical change. You have to have both to be in labor. That's the same definition for term labor. If you're greater than 34 weeks, we don't do a lot to stop labor. If you are in between 22 weeks and 34 weeks, then we're going to do all of the things because we don't know who's going to go into labor or who's not. And all of those treatments include antenatal corticosteroids, betamethasone, or dexamethasone, and then tocolytics. That's indomethacin, nifedipine, magnesium, or terbutaline. We also do magnesium for neuroprotection to protect the brain if it's less than 32 weeks. 
And then once labor stops, then how long you stay in the hospital or your need to reduce work will vary. One thing that is constant is that bed rest is not helpful. Okay, so there you have it. Do me a solid. Share this podcast with a friend if you find it useful. That helps me to reach and serve more people. Also subscribe to the podcast and Apple podcast or wherever you're listening to me right now. And I'd love it if you leave a review in Apple Podcasts. I do shout outs from those reviews and I just love to hear what you say about the show. Do come follow me over on Instagram. Uh, that's where I provide more information about pregnancy and birth and quotes and all kinds of good, great stuff. So follow me on Instagram at Dr. Nicole Rankins. Okay, so that's it for this episode. Do come on back next week. And remember that you deserve a beautiful pregnancy and birth. Thank you.